Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. First Peter 1 is where we're picking up our study through this letter from Simon Peter. Got through the first 12 verses last week. Prior to that, we had two messages building up to that to show what Simon Peter was like before his transformation, what he was like that became his transformation when God decided to forgive him through Jesus and gave him a commissioning to become a shepherd fisherman. He kind of changed vocations at that point. So now we're reading from his letter to believers that were scattered, those that were scattered into what we now know as northern Turkey, Asia Minor. They were strangers and aliens in a new land and felt like, I don't know what we're doing here, but I know God has a plan for us. And so this is the people to whom Peter is speaking. The theme today really seemed to me, God, uh, not trying to be glib here, but God put on my heart (laughs) that we need to live like we have a new heart. Joy and I, a little over 10 years ago, were in a waiting room, surgical waiting room at University of Michigan Hospital as her sister's brother's brother. So it would be our brother-in-law's brother. He's no relation to us, but he's like family. Dan Cunningham was having a heart swapped out. Dan was this guy, he was an outdoorsman, he loved to hunt and fish, he had a hunting dog and he would go out for hikes with his dog and train the dog how to fetch and bring back something that he would throw into the creek and whatnot. So Dan was this guy that looked for all intents and purposes like a strapping healthy guy. That is until he started to have some heart trouble and it turned out that it was debilitating to the point that he was going to need a transplant. So he lived for several more months carrying around a little pager with him. And if that pager were to go off, and he didn't know when that might happen, so he made sure that the batteries were really good in that pager. Because when that pager went off, it meant something really good and something really bad. The good thing was, you get to go pick up your new heart. The bad thing was, somebody had to die in order for you to pick up your new heart. So he lived with that in his conscious mind for months, until finally when his heart was getting so bad that they had to put a defibrillator in it that would jolt him back into action when his heart would start to fail, was not pumping properly. Uh, His heart was just barely quivering enough to get a little blood flow through his body by the time that pager went off. He was living on borrowed time. And the pager went off. The word got around to the family. He was whisked in there because they have to move quickly, as you can imagine. There was a much younger man. He was in his early 50s, as I recall. I'm going to say right around 50, 51, 52. Uh, A younger man was involved in a car car accident. And so he got a 19-year-old heart. And Dan, coming out of that experience, started to live as though he had a new heart. Fortunately, there was no rejection. He went through a period of getting used to it again. But, oh man, it wasn't too many months later when he was out hunting again with his brother Dave, my brother-in-law. It's an amazing experience, but there are some parallels that I'd like to make in this passage from 1 Peter 
about what I think we can learn from Dan Cunningham about living with a new heart. He said that he went through a short period where he lived with survivor guilt. Because here he is, literally with a heart that's keeping him alive, giving him a lot more months and probably years, and it's been over 10 now, and he's doing great. So thank the Lord, it's going to be many, many more years, I believe. He said, but I had to live with that guilt, thinking that somebody gave up their life in order for me to have the heart that's now keeping me alive. And he felt guilt about that. But he had to overcome that, realizing that guilt is no way to live, because who's he going to disappoint? Guilt is sort of a fear-based emotion. And it's something that for him caused him to fear disappointing somebody. Was he disappointing a family that he didn't even know and hadn't even met yet? Who was he disappointing? What, if, what was he fearing after all? He had to work through that in his own mind a little bit. And finally, he had to start learning to live with gratitude. To say, yes, it was a tragedy. And I'm praying for that family, whoever they might be, knowing that they're missing a loved one. But I want to live as though my life counts. And I want to live with gratitude because now suddenly I've been given this gift of a whole lot more time on the earth. And I don't want to waste a single day of that new gift that God's given me. Guilt is fear-based and fear breeds pessimism. In any one of us, we have seen that at work in our psyches as we start to fear something. Some of us are people pleasers. We fear disappointing somebody and that causes pessimism because we start getting down on ourselves and we start seeing things from a negative perspective and we have filters that we have to think everything through and we need to get rid of some of that if we're going to live with a sense of gratitude gratitude is love based as peter is writing to us about in first peter and then that kind of love breeds optimism that's why in the midst of their persecution in the midst midst of their feeling like exiles these people could be encouraged by peter Live as though you have this hope within you, because there's reason for hope, even though things are really dire around you, which is kind of the message that some of our pastor friends are sharing in Haiti and in Zimbabwe right now. They're trying to share this same kind of optimism in the face of real persecution for them. Simon Peter is encouraging believers to live as though they have new hearts. Let's look at that. I invite you to open that. I'm going to be going basically verse by verse through this passage the first word is one that Pastor Mike loves, therefore, or so, because we have to say, what's the therefore, therefore? In a sense, Peter is saying, because what I preached about last week, if you haven't seen it yet, you can go on onto our website because we do that as a podcast. Therefore, because you have this hope within you, because you know that you've been secured in your salvation, because the rescue that God did for you through Christ Jesus has given you a hope that's eternal, because you have an inheritance that you're looking forward to that's being kept in the safest place possible, heaven, by the one who made it possible, because of all that, now live as though you have a new heart. Live like it. Live with gratitude. So, he says, prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. When there's that great and awesome day of the Lord, and suddenly every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, those who are saved, those who have been rescued, those who have been sprinkled by the blood, as we've been talking about through here, for them it's going to be a glorious day. Incomprehensibly wonderful. To those, that will be the ones that they will say to God, Thy will be done 
So says C.S. Lewis. And then C.S. Lewis says, but to those who haven't embraced Christ, to those who have rejected God's love, even though it's been freely offered, he will say to them, I will be done. That's the day of the Lord that Peter is referring to here. And he says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Interesting that it would come from a guy who used to prepare his mind for action, but it was not the right kind of action. Remember the old Simon Peter, the Simon Peter who would leap into action and then wonder what he was leaping into. The guy who would open his mouth only to exchange feet once in a while. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. The guy who would zip out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear, the servant to the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane as they were arresting Jesus Christ. That was the kind of action that Simon Peter used to have. And now that he's been transformed into a spirit-filled person, he says, this is not the kind of action that I have in mind. I'm having in mind the sort of action that would cause you to be militantly meek, to demonstrate love in the face of adversity by being bold in your meekness toward others and with self-control. Isn't it interesting that God can use Peter, of all people, to tell people about being self-controlled? I love that. Uh, I'm telling on myself a little bit here, and it's more of a confession than anything. It's not a pat on the back. As I was having a a real full Scottish breakfast with the uh, associate pastor, David, over in Scotland on my sabbatical, he said, "Uh, you strike me as a person who's very calm and even keeled and that you rarely get ruffled. And I said, you should probably talk to my wife about that. I said, if you're seeing any of that, that is a testimony to the transformative process of the Holy Spirit. Because if anybody knew me when I was a youngster, I could really identify with Simon Peter. I said, but thank you for that encouragement, because it shows me that he who began that good work in me is still patiently chipping off my rough edges, because God knows I have a lot of rough edges. So that's the kind of thing that's happening with Simon Peter. Fortunately, he does that for all of us. Grace doesn't equate inaction and lack of self-control. That's what we learn from Simon Peter. He's saying you need to be ready for action because once we've been covered by God's grace, once we've been rescued or saved, that doesn't mean that we can sit back and say, okay, we got our ticket punched. I know that I have my life insurance policy so that I don't have to turn a burn. I'm, I'm turned, and so I'm going to heaven someday. So now I can just sit where it's safe and I'm going to surround myself with fellow believers and not take any action because I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I was just reading a great article that Dennis shared with me in a magazine about a very bold, militantly meek football coach. The only downside to that was it's the rivals for our kids' team down in South Carolina. But the upside is that this guy has really created a culture of Christ-like players. And he's very upfront about it. It's Clemson, in case you're all wondering who this person is. They actually even had a baptism on the field after practice one afternoon for one of the players, but he made it voluntary. He said, nobody has to stay if you don't want to, but this guy wants to be baptized because he wants to show that he's identifying with Christ. If you'd like to stay, feel free. Everybody stayed. They baptized him. But one of the assistant coaches shot a little picture with his phone of that and tweeted it and said, Best part of my week. Ah, now it's out there. So you can imagine there's a bit of a firestorm that started to surround that. And there had been a lot of people jumping in. There was a lawsuit and things like that. But you know what? 
Everything was done voluntarily, and people were saying, these are adults. It was voluntary. He's not forcing anything on them. He said, if you want to stay, you can stay. If you want to leave, you can leave. This guy's voluntarily doing that. The chaplain did the baptism. So we're not forcing religion on anybody. It's amazing to me to see how in that culture, people are standing boldly in a militant meekness for Christ, and God is blessing their efforts. That's the kind of thing that Peter is talking about when he says, be ready for action and self-control. These people are exercising tremendous love and self-control, but they're not passive in their faith. They're putting it into action. Let's say, for example, this is trying to get our minds around the shift in focus from somebody who used to fear God and fear authority like Peter may have at one time, and then things start to shift in our attitude. Let's say that you're a 16-year-old young man and that the only time you've seen policemen is when they've pulled somebody over, probably for speeding, and you see the cop shows and you can see how they're breaking into people's houses and throwing people on the ground and arresting them for drug raids and things. So you have this fear of policemen because you just fear authority in general and you kind of have a mistrust of cops. That's your, your attitude. And then your sister, who's older than you are by several years, marries a cop. So now all of a sudden you're related through marriage to this cop. He is your brother-in-law. And this cop starts going out and shooting pool with you at the local billiards place. He starts taking you bowling. He takes you around. He shows you how to drive your car more safely. He gets you, he helps get you your driver's license. I mean, he's a guy who's really pouring his life into yours, and he's a cop. What happens to your mind? You've got all this preconception about what you think cops are like, and now you've got this cop in your life, and you think, now wait a minute. Evidently, not all cops are bad. There's at least one that I know specifically who is a good person, and he cares about me, and therefore, you start to shift your attitude toward, toward cops in general. What made the difference? The personal relationship. There's a personal relationship that has allowed you to see the true character of this person. You know, because he cares about me, I'm learning to care about him. So you fear disappointing him more than you fear punishment. You see the shift? That's what I think happened with Peter. Instead of fearing God's wrath and retribution after he denied Christ... He feared disappointing Christ because he knew how much Jesus loved him. That's an amazing, huge shift in our mindset when people can get to that awareness for Jesus. And it's God's love that demonstrates that to us through Christ that allows us to see that shift. So that's what's starting to happen in Peter's life. And he says in verse 14, So, You must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better back then. What would Dan Cunningham do if he slipped into some bad habits after he got his new heart? And he says, I'm going to eat every deep fried thing I can get my hands on. I'm going to smoke a cigar or two every day. I'm going to drink a six pack every night because I got a new heart. So, what do I have to lose? Do you think that that would be honoring to the person who gave his life so that he could have that new heart? Well, no, I don't think so. And I think it would be poor stewardship on his part. But the attitude is what happens when you recognize that when you're gracious and 
And when you have gratitude in your heart for what somebody's given you, you want to do the right things for the right reasons. That's what a holy attitude is for us. Wanting to do the right things, but for the right reasons. And that's what happens to a believer when we start living as though we have a new heart. It's not fear of disappointing somebody or, or of, uh, of getting slapped up. It's because we love him so much that we just want to do the right thing for the right reasons. That's like Dan and his new heart. Then in verse 15 and 16. But now, Peter says, you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. And I've heard several people, particularly in college age range, say, oh man, holy? Really? I mean, wouldn't that be exceptionally boring? Because probably they'd be thinking, you've just stolen every possible avenue of having fun by telling me I have to be holy. Because they might think that being holy simply means to be morally good. Making good choices. You just make good choices now when you go out to school. Make good choices. If they think that's what holiness is, they're missing the point of holiness and what it stands for. Let me give you an example. Uh, my family knows another family. It's also down in South Carolina. They have four kids now. Two of them are adopted. Two are biological. You can't tell them apart. You wouldn't be able to tell which kid's biological and which is adopted. Not just because physically they have some similarities, but they've taken on so many of their parents' characteristics that they, you couldn't help but say, oh man, that person has to belong to that. The facial expressions, some of the phrases that they use, things like that, they, they're taking on the characteristics of their parents. Peter is saying, if we've been given a new heart by Christ, which we have, if we've trusted him, we're going to start taking on the characteristics or the character qualities of our parent, which means that we're going to start making right choices for the right reasons. That's what holiness is. Those kinds of people are winsome. They're attractive to other folks. They're adventurous. They're not boring prudes, as some might expect. They're actually some of the most fun people you can imagine. But isn't holiness boring? No, not at all. C.S. Lewis says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. If you think about it, a person who's truly holy, who's making the right choices for the right reasons, that's the person who's going to look you right in the eye, and they're good listeners. They're going to elicit good input from you because you matter to them. They're going to be the people that you want on your side if there's a conflict because they'll come to your aid. They're going to be the people that you can trust. Why? Because they're honest, which means that they're trustworthy. You can trust what they say is true. They're going to be the people that when life becomes deadly serious for some reason, you're going to want to go to that person. You're going to want a holy person because that's what holiness is. It's the person who's taking on the character qualities of their parent. And in this case, the parent is our heavenly father. That's what holiness is. Gratitude as a motivation keeps you living like you belong to God. Which is why we need to gather together to keep showing him how much we appreciate him. It reminds us of where our gratitude should be aimed. God doesn't play favorites. Isn't that good to know? He tells us this in this passage. He doesn't pick and choose and say, well, you were pretty holy this week. But you, whoo, I don't know. He doesn't play favorites like that. He is absolutely impartial in his judgments. Verse 17 says that. Remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. So all of us have the same 
ability to tap into him through the Holy Spirit and to take on his character qualities. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. And what we do spills out of who we are. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. He's speaking to people that are literally temporary residents where they are. And he's speaking on a broader scale that all of us are temporary residents because this world is ultimately not our real home. Heaven is our real home. So live in reverent fear. Now, uh, the only person who ever calls me reverend is trying to sell something. They'll call me up and I'll answer the phone and he'll say, is this Reverend Cawthorn? And I want to say, I'm not very reverent most of the time, but you must be a salesperson because I'm just Clark. But he says, you must live in reverent fear. What is reverent fear? That means something that brings the greatest respect, the deepest form of respect that you have for somebody else. That's what reverent fear is all about. Like Catherine Hardcastle, my four foot 10 grandmother. She instilled reverent fear in me, and she was not an intimidating person. She wasn't as tall as Shaquille O'Neal. She wasn't as strong as Dwayne Johnson. But I feared her more than I feared those two guys. Because I feared disappointing her. I loved her that much because I knew she loved me. She was not intimidating in the least. She was the most gracious, loving individual I've ever met. And I had a reverential fear for Grandmother Hardcastle. When people walked into the room with her, they were better people simply because they revered her that way. See, that's what happens when character starts to become expressed through action, which is what Peter is saying we as believers ought to do. God redeemed you from an empty life. He says so again in this passage. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. How did I inherit that? There's this thing called original sin. Started with the very first person. It's trickled down into every other human being on the face of the earth. All of us are born with this bent to sin. This propensity to become sinners. And so every human being has sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that. He said, but God paid a ransom so you could be saved from that empty life of sin. From being in bondage to sin. So he's ransomed you from that. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which loses its value, it was paid with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Just as that person had to shed blood and give his own heart so that Dan Cunningham could live with a new heart, in this case, only in a much bigger sense, Jesus Christ paid that ransom and he gave us a new heart by giving up his own life on the cross. God chose him as your ransom to rescue you long before the world began. That means that God, through his omniscience, knew ahead of time what his rescue plan was going to be, and he fulfilled his action through that plan, through Jesus Christ. But now, in these last days, Peter says, he has been revealed for your sake. When are the last days? Well, it started back here, so we're still in them. So he can say to us, from this scripture passage, he's re revealed for your sake, and your sake, and your sake today. When you grasp the cost you start to live differently. I couldn't understand why my dad had this repetitious, broken record kind of admonition that, hey, when you leave the room, turn off the light. I wish I had a dollar for every time he said that to me. I'd be a wealthy man. I couldn't understand it until years later, after I had been married, I have to confess. And I was sitting down with the checkbook, 
writing out the electric bill. And it was like a light went on over my head, so to speak. And I, I looked up and I thought, Dad, I get it now. I understand that admonition. And then I became a father and suddenly I started to sound just like my dad. And I would say, kids, when you leave a room, turn off the light. Because when you grasp the cost, you live differently. When Dan Cunningham started to grasp the cost of his new heart, he began to live differently. He said, I want to eat right. I want to exercise well. I want to breathe clean air so I'm not going to smoke. I'm going to do the things that I need to do. Why? Because I understand the cost and I appreciate it. I'm living with a life of gratitude, so I'm going to do the right things for the right reasons. That's what happens. You'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that. We sing that song, upon the cross. It's through Christ that you have come to trust God. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth, so now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. And I'm grateful that we have a body of Christ. You're good at doing that. You really are. Jeremy and Karen Shaw said so. That's good gossip because they gossiped about that to me after the fact and said, you have some people that really know how to show concern for one another. It was evident to them, and I appreciate that. Keep it up. So how do you know that somebody's caring about you? You just know. It would be a very difficult essay to write out if a teacher said, define how you know you have been loved. It'd be tough for me. I tried to think through that this week, thinking about this passage. And I thought, well, I know that my mom and dad cared about me. Because when I made some rash decisions as a youngster, when I was like Simon Peter and I would leap first and then ask questions later, they would bail me out. One time, a friend of mine at college told me they really need trombone players in this traveling group called Continental Singers. And they'll give you a free ride scholarship because you're that valuable to them. You should come. And I said, that sounds great. Travel, free scholarship, I'm in. Well, that was his promise. It wasn't the promise of the organization. I got there and found out, oh, this is going to cost $600 before I can do this thing. Well, my mom and dad thought it was such a great experience that even though I had totally misunderstood because I jumped and then asked questions later instead of investigating it carefully because it was not being self-controlled, they said, it's a good thing. We're going to make several payments and make this happen for you. So they paid my way so I could go on that tour with Continental Singers. Well, I knew that they cared about me. That was one way that they were tangibly expressing their love for me, by taking care of things even though I had blundered into something. That's one way we know we're loved. We know that we're loved when people forgive us for the countless times when we do put our foot in our mouth and we say things that we think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I really regret that. And they say, that's okay. I understand. I forgive you. Let's keep going forward. We just know. We know when we're being loved. If you were to ask a kid, even a six or seven-year-old, do you know if you're being loved or not? They'd say, yeah, I can tell. We just know that. How do you know? We're supposed to be that for one another, he says. Verse 23, for you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. This is when he's starting to give optimism because of what he knows this inheritance that he started about early in the chapter is pointing toward. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living Word of God. Peter's giving us a real carrot to dangle out in front of us to say, this is reason for optimism. This is reason for hope. This is what you should be aiming at 
Because if you start to get all of your sight off on your circumstances around you, it can become overwhelming and defeating. But if you look at that inheritance that we have to look forward to, you can have that living word of God living within you. It gives you optimism and hope. So why look forward to heaven? Because that's the one place, as we've been learning, where there will be no sin. No sin at all. That's why God has to have a hell for a place where there will be sin, because there's not going to be any sin in heaven. So, reason for optimism? Yeah, because we have that. How much sin do you think should be allowed into heaven? Uh, I've given quite a bit of blood throughout my lifetime because I had a kind of a rare blood type. And so they would always check it because they wanted to make sure that there's nothing bad in there that I'm going to pass along to somebody that could receive my blood in an operation. So they would say, oh, you know, you have uh, 12 parts per million of some bad, awful thing in there. I, I don't know what kind of antigen that, they would, that would be bad for that. Here's the blood expert right here. But let's say, you know, you, you've got a teaspoon of arsenic in your blood. I don't think we should give your blood to somebody because you have arsenic in your blood. I, I'm just making this up. You can tell. And I would say, oh, well, I'm sorry about that. They want to make sure that, you're have, that you have pure blood that you're passing along, right? Because they don't want to give somebody, let's say, AIDS if you're giving your blood to somebody else. Well, how much sin do you think should be allowed into heaven? Would it be 0.1%? Would that be okay? Maybe 0.001%? Maybe 0.0095%? They can, there can be no sin in heaven, or it would not be heaven. It's got to be pure. It's got to be completely holy. That's where that glorification is going to happen one day, when finally we get to see God face to face, and he's cleansed us from everything, and we don't have to be tainted by it anymore. That's why there is a hell, because there has to be a place for the pure, holy living that God's going to have for all of his people. That's reason for optimism. Because I'm not going to blunder into things anymore. I'm not going to say those things that I regret anymore. I'm not going to hurt people's feelings anymore, because there will be no sin in heaven. I would like for us to think for a moment about how we can be agents of optimism by living with gratitude, with that inheritance to look forward to as though we have a new heart. And if you haven't already given your heart to Christ to let him remake you, I want to urge you to do that and to ask people how that happened in their life so you can follow suit. Because I think it's the best decision you can make, not just for the rest of this life, but literally for eternity. Let's pray together. Father, as I think about circumstances of my friends in a couple of countries where things are really tough right now, it makes me think more seriously and more contemporarily about Peter and the letter that he wrote to people who are in similar circumstances. It also helps me know that your word is very relevant, and I pray that your Holy Spirit is making it relevant to the hearers today, knowing that the same words he wrote 2,000 years ago are just as true today. And that we too can have that optimism by living with a life of gratitude, not a life of fear, not a life of guilt, but a life of gratitude because of what you've done for us. We do know the cost. And because we know the cost, we need to live differently, as Peter says. And I pray that we will. I pray that as a collective body of believers and as individuals who make up that body, we would start to take on the look and behavior of our Father 
so that people can say, oh yeah, clearly that's one of his kids. And that they would be drawn to the holiness in us because holiness is not being a boring prude. It's being somebody who's doing the right things for the right reasons. Would you give us the strength through your Holy Spirit to do that this week? I pray in Jesus' name.